Hello, and welcome to the Her Voice podcast. I'm Kamel Caruso, Chief Revenue Officer for HerMD and your host for today. We're a female forward wellness center committed to empowering women through comprehensive health, beauty, and wellness services. Today, I'm joined by our founder, Dr. Somi Javade, and Catherine, a patient of ours at HerMD. Catherine was diagnosed at 28 with breast cancer. She is bravely sharing her story with us today. Catherine, thank you for talking with us today. Welcome. Hi. Thanks for having me. Of course. It's so great to talk with you. I always love chatting with you. So today we're talking about a really important topic, survivorship and breast cancer. And so Catherine, thank you for being so brave and talking with us today. So breast cancer is one of the most prevalent cancers women are diagnosed with. Yet women in their 30s and younger, it's just 0.4%. And you were diagnosed at 28. So tell us your story of discovery and your first visit to your oncologist. Sure. Yeah, it was actually quite a long process between me finding my lump and being diagnosed that it was cancer. You know, gratefully, I had this rash that covered my chest, my stomach, and eventually led to um, covering my entire back. It was a really itchy, relentless rash. I had it, you know, all through March, but one day, this was on April 5th of 2020, I was just laying on my couch, mindlessly itching at said rash. And that's when I found my lump. And with, you know, I think we'll talk about self-breast exams a little bit, but, you know, I would like to say that I was doing one of those because I am a registered nurse. I have been in women's healthcare for, you know, almost six years and you think I would know better, but yeah, I found this lump when I was itching at this rash. Um, and I immediately called the breast oncologist here in Cincinnati, got in within that week. They did a physical exam, they did an ultrasound um, and a biopsy the next day, but unfortunately, most of that came back inconclusive. So the recommendation at that point was to surgically remove it and do an excisional biopsy. And with COVID and restrictions, and you know, this was not an emergent surgery. And like you said, breast cancer affects, you know, women who are younger so little. We pushed the surgery out till about mid-May. So it had been, you know, almost a month and a half by the time we even knew what it was. And to be completely honest, that month and a half was pure torture. It was one of those things when I found it, knowing what I do know about, you know, suspicious lumps and things, when I felt it, I just had this pit in my stomach. And I just knew it wasn't supposed to be there. And, you know, when we did go to the doctor that week, my myself and my husband, and I saw the lump on ultrasound, it was like this ugly, misshapen, thing on the screen. And I just remember laying there, your arms up, you're wedged up on a pillow so they can get a perfect angle and a perfect image. And I saw that. And I just remember thinking the same thing, like, oh my gosh, this is not supposed to be there. But, you know, with research and the things that we do know and numbers, you know, the likelihood of it being something was really low. So, you know, I kept having to tell myself, like, it's probably nothing, it's probably nothing, it's probably nothing. But mind you, this is in the heat of COVID and stay at home orders. So when I did go to the doctor, it was like a ghost town there. It was so strange. It's like cancer center that I have been to before. And usually there's so many people there, they're getting like their ports access, they're getting labs, they're seeing the physicians, you know, this is a multifunctional practice. And everyone is like trying to social distance. And I remember the night before my first appointment, we were scrambling to find masks, you know, because people had just started wearing them. 
And so thankfully we had a friend, actually it's my husband's boss, who's a jack of all trades. She puts them together for us really quickly with her sewing machine, drops them off on my front porch at like 11 PM. We went to the doctor the next morning, but I mean, through all of that, we were all at home. And so with that, you know, I really went through this whole process very quietly just because I needed to like gauge my own emotions and, you know, my response to this. Right. I mean, that was a lot to take in, especially you mentioned with COVID going on as well and just all the uncertainty around that and then putting this on top of it. So when you got the diagnosis and, you know, you had the surgery, how did that start to affect your life personally and your relationships? At first, you know, because it was about a month and a half from discovery to realizing what it was. And when I finally did have the diagnosis, I almost felt a sense of relief because the month and a half of not knowing what this thing was in my chest for so long, that was really hard for me emotionally. So I almost did have a sense of reassurance once we actually had a definitive diagnosis. That was kind of a weight that was taken off of my shoulders. But of course, it was terrifying at the same time. Luckily, I have the most loving and supportive husband in the world, which I think we'll talk about that a little bit later. But like my poor parents, they live in Colorado, they couldn't be here for me. And my mom, she knew I had that appointment where they were going to tell me what the lump was. And I remember her texting me like that entire day leading up to the appointment, like, are you okay? Are you okay? Are you okay? But I was just working really hard to keep myself busy. And you know, my dad, he's like my best bud in the whole world. And, you know, I think it was really hard for him emotionally. I did have an aunt, though, who went through almost an identical situation and experience just months before me. So having her as a sounding board and someone who had gone through this so personally and being close to her, it was really nice to have her through all of this just because she knew everything I was talking about. But overall, I mean, my support system was amazing. And um, same with my my team, with my, you know, my surgical oncologist and the radiologist, they were amazing. So I'm so glad that you didn't experience what a lot of women in healthcare experience. So, and I think the important message is here is, yes, even though the incidence of breast cancer is so low in young women, no one knows your body better than you do. And so if you feel something and you have that feeling in your gut, trust it and Mm -hmm. seek care and check out what's going on. I can't tell you how many women have to have hindsight or regret when they come to my office because they're like, oh yeah, I felt something, but I figured it was nothing or no big deal. Or as women, we always put the needs of others before our own, our children, our spouses work. And so I'm so glad when I heard that part of your story, you're like, I got in that week. And I'm glad that despite your age, your doctors were like, oh, it's, it's, probably not nothing. And they listened to you and they ordered the appropriate testing. So I'm glad that you didn't face any delays in diagnosis there. I know you had that month and a half, but I'm glad it was a shorter amount of time. And given the fact that it was COVID, I know it could have been so much longer for you, which would have not been, you know, a great thing. So, and I can only imagine going through this um, during COVID and having to be so far away from family. I mean, the immense stress that that probably put on, is crazy. Yeah, absolutely. And I did have a lot of people, you know, when I was telling them what happened and how, you know, it was like, I found my lump on a Sunday evening watching TV. I got up Monday morning, we had our weekly Zoom call. And then the first thing I did was call the doctor. But I had so many people 
when I would tell them this story, they would say, oh, good thing you went to the doctor. Good thing you had it checked out. And I was like, what? Of course I did. You know, there was no other option. And I think, yeah, like I did have great advocacy from my provider. But I feel like in that sense, like we can be advocates for ourselves as well. Like I knew something was up and I wanted to know what that was. So, you know, you have to take care of yourself too. Yeah. And that's such an important message that advocacy, I'd love to talk more, like circle back to, you said, you know, it was a Sunday night and you felt the lump. How do you know what it feels like? How do you do a self breast exam? And then what, you know, Dr. Javade said, a lot of women are like, oh, I kind of felt something, but I thought it was nothing. Like, how do you know when it is something? Yeah. So, you know, very rudimentary and doctors are crude and we compare things to food, but just so it's relatable. Right. And so a lot of women have fibrocystic breast disease or breasts, we shouldn't call it disease. So they're just very cystic and that's normal. And, you know, it's just a normal variant. And then other women don't have that. And that's what patients say. Well, it's all lumpy. How do I know? And so, you know, some breasts feel like pizza dough, very smooth, and there's not a lot of lumps in there. And then women who have fibrocystic breasts, it feels like grapes. You know, that's what it feels like underneath the skin. And so I remember in medical school, um, them putting grapes in a um, Ziploc bag and then sticking a golf ball in there. And so it's kind of like Catherine described how it was this like hard, um, misshapen thing that she saw in ultrasound and how it just felt different. So, you know, we were forced to close our eyes and feel the bag of grapes and then feel the ridges of the golf ball and what it felt like. And so that's what I tell people. Usually a growth or a cancer feels hard. It feels fixed. It doesn't move like the rest of your breast tissue. It may cause some puckering in the skin that looks like the peel of an orange. Um, if all of a sudden your nipple is inverted um, and it wasn't before, or if you sometimes a rash can be a sign of an underlying breast cancer, an inflammatory type of breast cancer, a lot of women will find a lymph node in their armpit rather than actually feel the actual tumor or growth. And so the other thing that women can do to have a reliable breast exam is try to do it um, right as your cycle is ending, if you're still cycling. So like day seven of your of your period. Or the same date. I tell people, if you're born on the 7th, then do it the 7th of every month. Because that way, you know, our breasts cycle too. And they respond to our hormones. So that way, at least you're checking your breasts at the same cycle time. So those are just some of my pointers. Catherine, do you want to add to that based on what you went through when you found your own lump? Yeah, absolutely. And to be fair, Dr. Javade, we do refer to my lump as the strawberry because when we saw it on ultrasound, it was about three centimeters in size. And when I came out of the room to tell my husband, like the size of it, he was like, well, what does it like three centimeters look like? And the first thing that popped up on Google was a strawberry. So that's what we call it. So in nursing school, what they taught us, you know, to think and look for a few different things, you know, if, like you said, the lump is firm, if it is painless, and um, if it's mobile or not. So usually one that just stays in place, you know, you worry about a little bit more. So with this in mind, when I felt my lump, it, to me, it felt like the size of like a quarter. So probably like what Dr. Javade was saying, a grape or a golf ball. And it didn't hurt at all. I could barely feel it, you know, and the only way I could find it was if I was like slightly twisted laying down. And when I did go back for an MRI after they knew what it was, and I had a diagnosis, they found some more lumps elsewhere 
in my chest. And when I went in for my exams for that and had more ultrasounds, those hurt. When they would touch me with the ultrasound probe and, you know, moving the tissue around, that became very sore. But with this lump that I felt, it wasn't sore at all. It was just really firm. I didn't feel like it moved that much. My nurse practitioner, I saw, saw, thought it did. So that was, you know, reassuring at that time. But those are just a few things that we always look for uh, when we're doing a self-breast exam. And I tell most women to start at 21. That's when I tell them to start their self-breast exams. You know, even though we're only starting mammography at 40 for women without a family history or without genetic abnormalities, I tell most girls to get familiar. And the more familiar they are with their own tissue and their own body, right? Because most doctors, Mm -hmm. I'm only examining someone once a year. And so- I am not going to be as familiar with their tissue or maybe not remember, but they know what their breasts feel like month to month. And so the more you do those self-breast exams, the more you're going to be aware that, hey, this this is not usually there. There's something different. And then the other thing I tell people, you know, those breast exam cards that are hanging all over college campuses will tell young girls or women to squeeze their nipples looking for discharge As physicians, we don't worry about that as much. What we more worry about is spontaneous discharge. So I tell girls and women, if you take off your bra and you notice something red or green or black, I don't care the color. I I just want to know. Unless, of course, you're nursing, I should say that, breastfeeding or something else is going on. So for all non-breastfeeding women, if there is discharge, that warrants a workup. Even if you don't have a lump, because sometimes you can have uh, tumor cells within your duct's Um, your milk ducts or your milk glands. So that is very important as well. Yeah, I agree. The biggest takeaway is doing self-breast exams just so that you are very familiar with your breast so that you do notice when there is a change. So Catherine, when we also talked a little bit about this earlier, you had said like when you met with your oncologist and, and you're in like the healthcare industry, so you are obviously well educated, hyper aware of a lot of a lot of these things that maybe most other women aren't, but you mentioned that your oncologist asked you and talked to you about your sexual health post-treatment. So walk us through that. Yeah. So like you said, I am in women's health. I am specifically in women's sexual health. So my job is to go around and educate providers about this category of women's health. So I know that it gets ignored so much of the time. Um, And when they gave me my diagnosis, I was at the office for like two hours talking with them. And part of that was them telling me my options. And of course, my husband and I, we needed time to decide on how we were going to proceed. Nothing was super urgent because I found my cancer very early, but we were leaning towards a double mastectomy for a number of reasons. And when we verbalized that during the appointment, you know, we said like, probably to go for the double mastectomy, you know, the other options are worth considering. But my oncologist, she said, well, if you go through with a double mastectomy, then you need to consider your intimacy and how this is going to affect your sexual health. And knowing what I know, I just looked at her and I think it was the first time that I had smiled that day. What did you just say? And she said, yeah, you have to think about your intimacy. And I just wanted to like, you know, ring a bell or start clapping for her because I was so proud of her for acknowledging this because like I said, it is so ignored. Yes. No, I was happy when I heard that. And Somi, I know you're like, I'm going to jump in. Yeah. So jump in and talk about like, how common is it? Right. So it's, um, it's rare. Oncologists don't usually um, address it. I will tell you 
more and more survivorship programs are starting to pop up, especially in um, teaching hospitals. So they're definitely aware that there is a huge gap in treating patients for their cancers and then trying to figure out what to do with survivorship. And survivorship involves a lot more than just the sexual health piece, but that's kind of where Catherine and I, our passion lies. And I will tell you personally, you know, I'm married to a medical oncologist and he will tell you until I really started doing this, he never addressed it. He said he is, was so buried in the data and trying to help patients pick the best treatment options and survive that he was very overwhelmed when they came back to him. And he has great rapport with his patients and he admitted his own limitations and now he does address it. And he's also very proud. So we should ring a bell for him too, right? <laughs> I address it and I make sure they get into the right, you know, people or at least prepare women for what they're going to go through. A few years ago, though, Cancer Care Ontario and ASCO, which is the American Society of Clinical Oncology, addressed sexual health care for the first time. And they actually had a couple of recommendations. So the first one is what Catherine's doctor did, address sexual health and the fact that it may be impacted by chemo or radiation or even some of the oral medications. The second thing is, is to offer counseling to either the patient or with the patient's permission to involve the partner. And the counseling should address things like body image, sexual health, pelvic floor health. They talk about getting into pelvic floor counseling. They do mention treatment for vaginal dryness or VVA. They also talk about using lubricants. And they do mention that some women, because of their cancers or the surgery that they have or the medications that they take, go through very premature menopause and may have hot flashes or other systemic menopausal side effects. And so there are also recommendations for medications to treat those as well. So this is the first time that they have addressed all of these needs both sexual and menopausal and talk about counseling and pelvic floor physical therapy. And I love the fact that it's very empowering to women and talks about offering it to the patient and then making sure that she is on board to bring on her partner and to address all of this. So I think they are finally looking at this multidisciplinary approach. And this was a huge deal when these came out. Why is there such little awareness about the sexual dysfunction that can occur because of, you know, treatment or being a survivor? I'm going to talk about it professionally and then I'm going to let Catherine talk about it personally. Um, I think the barriers are twofold. I think the first is patient hesitation. So Maybe they're not as familiar as Catherine or as comfortable. And so there's shame, there's fear, there's embarrassment, there's isolation, there's depression about how your body is changing, how your hormones are changing. So there is all of that as far as the patient goes. Sometimes they're not comfortable addressing this with their partner. They're already going through all these health changes. And so they don't even want to think about all of that other stuff. The second is provider. So even though in the ASCO statement, they talk about addressing sexual dysfunction and go as far as naming all the domains of sexuality, desire, arousal, pain, orgasm, we know that a lot of providers, gynecologists, 
forget the oncologists are not trained in sexual health or sexual dysfunction. So they don't want to bring it up because they don't know if a patient says, oh my God, yes, I'm having a problem with my orgasm. They don't know how to treat it. And so I think for me, those are the two barriers that I see and why it doesn't get addressed. And then the one final thing, and I was surprised when Catherine said she was there for over two hours, because Mm -hmm. we know that in an insurance-based system, the average appointment, now this is not for oncology, but the average appointment times are 15 minutes. So how are you going to address treatment, surgery, medications, and then talk to someone about their sex life when the doctor's hand is on the doorknob? You know, you can't practice, this is not doorknob medicine. And so those are, those are my thoughts and why it's not brought up often enough. For me, I think, you know, a lot of what I see is like, there's almost still this stigma around it, even though we know so much about men's health care and men's sexual health. You know, the other part of it, I think, is the lack of formal education. You know, so little of even OBGYN are trained on sexual health. And Dr. Javid, I think that you had to seek out training for yourself. You weren't provided that in medical school or through your residency at all. So I think that forms like a lack of confidence with providers. But for me, you know, I see a lot of that on a day-to-day basis. And, you know, I was shocked when my oncologist mentioned this. And I did go through the route of a double mastectomy so that I could avoid some of those hormone blockers and, you know, potentially being in premature menopause. But I think people who are hearing this, they're going to be able to relate because when you do have a massive surgery, especially one that affects like your chest and your abdomen. I mean, everything changes with your relationships as well. And I think a lot of women, though, they're so grateful that they're surviving, that they dismiss their sexual health, because on the priority list, it might be a little bit lower for them. But so many women are affected. And for me, you know, I had incisions that actually went under my breast because I had a breast reduction three years ago. So we used those scars and we were able to spare my nipples. But that was all, you know, when I would go to sit up, that would tie in, you know, my abdominal muscles and everything there. So, you know, when I talk about intimacy, I even mean just like giving my husband a hug because for him, you know, hopefully he doesn't kill me for saying this, but things like that are so important to him. And so if you can imagine you know, if I'm going in and going to give anybody a hug, really, it's like, oh, okay, but don't touch my chest. Oh, you want to hug me? Okay, don't touch my stomach either. You know, and how awkward is that? You know, Camille, Dr. Javed, I don't know the last time you gave your husband a side hug, you know, and felt intimate. Yeah, not the most intimate of things, but I think, you know, you hit on something so important that when women are just saying, I've been through so much, I'm just happy I'm surviving, like, I'm not worrying about this other piece. What was it like for you? I mean, I know you mentioned the side hug with your husband, but how did your treatment and post-treatment affect your relationship with your spouse and just intimacy in general? Yeah. So we found a lump when we were still newlyweds. So less than a year before we had our first anniversary, but it's just so interesting to look back and hopefully I don't get emotional. But like I said before, my husband is the most loving and supportive person in the world. And when I just would sit back and watch him, I mean, not just take care of me, he was running circles around me, making sure I had everything I needed. And I will go on record here and say that that guy was making me mocha lattes every single morning 
before I even was ready to get out of bed. He would make me a mocha latte with stevia, of course. And I mean, to get me out of bed, he would have to bear hug me and literally lift me up. He would have to get me dressed. He did literally everything. And for me, it's like that side of him, you know, the emotional growth was amazing. And the way that I view him now in our relationship was just something that I never expected. And, you know, I hope that nothing ever happens to him where I have to prove, you know, that I can care for him like this in the same way. But it's like, you just love that person so much more differently. And there definitely was a time though, where it's like that emotional support was, you know, better than it's ever been. Whereas like the physical side of things are almost non-existent which is sad, but thankfully I have Dr. Javade in my backyard. You know, I always say that us ladies in Cincinnati, we're so lucky because all I have to do is call her up and go to her office, you know, when I have issues that do come up. Yeah. And for me watching Catherine, I did see changes and it's so good to see that smile planted back on that face because it lights up a room. So I definitely saw changes in her personality. I definitely saw, you know, her go through some of the stages when you're diagnosed with a life altering condition. But I think she is supported by a work family that loves her, her spouse. She's very connected to her family and she was just so real and open and honest. And I remember talking to her in the beginning and I was like, when you're ready, I think you would be such an amazing person to share your story because you're so honest. You're coming from such a real place And I just thought about all of the other women that she could help because it is this taboo stigma topic, not only cancer, but cancer at a young age. And then talking about, you know, sexual dysfunction and barriers to intimacy. And, you know, everyone always thinks about intimacy as, you know, penis in the vagina or sexual intercourse. But like you touched on, intimacy is so much more. It's it's laying together. It's holding hands. It's being open to touch. It's it's a side hug. It's hugging. It's, you know, skin to skin contact. It, there's so many other things to intimacy and cancer can rob couples of that. And so I think you you did all the right things by talking to your oncologist, staying connected with your friends and being honest about the way that you were feeling through the process. And I remember you saying, Jay, there's good days, there's great days, and then there's bad days, but I'm going to extend myself some grace. And I think that was huge for your healing process, both emotionally, but physically and mentally as well. Yeah, it's like really crazy. You know, I think a lot of people right now are talking about how, you know, we're coming on a year since COVID, you know, took the world by storm and, you know, turned into this global pandemic and things shut down and people lost their businesses or people weren't able to provide for their family. And I, you know, I am starting to hear people say things like burnout or their depression is worsening or, you know, their anxiety is coming back. And I definitely know that as I'm coming on like my year of finding my lump, I know that, you know, I'm going to be a little bit rocky. I'm probably going to cry a lot that day. You know, but honestly, like for me and my cancer, and I do not want to sound insensitive to people who have gone through their own cancer diagnosis and their own journey, because for some, it does take away everything. But for me, there was just so many more lessons that I learned about like myself, my husband, my faith that I wouldn't trade for anything. So even though, you know, cancer did take away some things. 
from me, but I gained a lot more. And I hear that a lot. And I hear it from women who may have not been as proactive in the beginning of their journey when they're first diagnosed, because you're right, they go into that, I want to live survival mode, but then they Mm -hmm. will find their way to me and say, okay, I'm done being a survivor. I I want to thrive. I want to live. I want that piece of my life back and I deserve it. I don't want to be known as a survivor or someone who just lived. I I want quality of life. And so it's about you know, regaining that ownership of their life, especially when they're, you know, knocked off their feet or some of my patients will describe it literally took their breath away. And they just, the next step was just concentrating on breathing and getting through the surgery, getting through the chemo, getting through the diagnosis, helping their family also, you know, adjust to the new norm. And I love the fact that women don't want those labels and they're choosing their own path and their own journey and deciding to take that ownership back of their life. And so like you said, cancer did take something, but I think you took a whole lot more back. And I think that should be the message is that you take what you want out of this and you shape your life the way you you want it to be, but you don't have to live a certain way. Uh, and I think that's, that's huge and very important for other people who are struggling to hear that as well. Yeah, I feel like, you know, I am feeling back to normal. And I'm just so grateful, too, because it's crazy to think of where I was just like, you know, six months ago, and, you know, in horrible pain every single day, you know, the nerve pain, when you have lymph nodes removed is no joke. But to feel as great as I do now, just makes me want to thrive even more. That's so good to hear. Because I was going to ask you, like, you know, you're coming up on a year. What is your life like now? Like, how are you feeling now? How is your relationship? Yeah, things are great now. Honestly, we have a lot going on. And you know, I told you this before being busy for me is a very good thing. And you know, we have a lot of things coming up. I do have another surgery, like I said, in a week. And that's just for more reconstruction. And I'm always afraid of, you know, surgery and things like that of hospitals a little bit, you know, it's always terrifying when you are that vulnerable. But honestly, beyond that, it's just looking at everything through a new lens. And like I said, just appreciating my family and the people who are there for me and supporting me and just being grateful and just feeling so blessed for what I do have. That's amazing. I mean, you have such a great support group for women who might not what are some of the options that they have for support from other survivors or other organizations? You know, like I said, I was pretty quiet through most of it. Just, I mean, A, because I wasn't seeing people with COVID, you know, we were at stay-at-home orders. And I honestly had to stay off of things like Facebook and other social media platforms just because you hear the worst of the worst stories and I think that that's really important for people to remember is that just because someone else had ABC happen in their life or, you know, with their journey, that does not mean it's going to happen to you, even though they have the same exact diagnosis and they're the same age as you. And I really had to remind myself of that. But for women who don't have support directly around them, I mean, I really do think that they need to be proactive and advocate. They can always ask their physicians because like Dr. Javade was saying, there are survivorship programs. And there are resources that are set up for women because we're not alone in any of this. I was never alone. Yeah, no. So for us, I know in Cincinnati, there's definitely the Pink Ribbon Girls. There's the Karen Wellington Foundation. They do more um, trips than that 
There's also always Susan G. Komen. So there are a lot of organizations. There are a lot of Facebook groups. There's a lot of social media. But I think, you know, Catherine, you touched on something very important is that some women want to go through this journey very privately and they don't want to be out on social media. And I think it's about recognizing what that's going to do for you. I agree. I think for a lot of people that can make it worse. A lot of people will post, you know, the worst of the worst um, with the best of intentions, but sometimes that's not great. And so you have to also make sure I like to protect my patients and tell them, please go on reliable groups, please mm-hmm. make sure, you know, because anyone can post what they want and may not be medically accurate. And if you're too afraid to ask your physician or you haven't gotten there or you're in that waiting period, you know, sometimes like you, you have an abnormal um, imaging and it might be a, a month till you get in for your biopsy and a lot of negative things can happen in your head, right? And then if it's amplified by social media, then I tell patients to stay off of that and find your support system with girlfriends or a spouse or a sister, you know, or someone who's who's been through it because one in eight, right, U.S. women will eventually be diagnosed with breast cancer, most not as young as you, but definitely you are not my youngest um, and, it, and it happens. So I think the, there are multiple resources, but you have to know what's right for you. And that comes into recognizing, you know, your own mental health and your own emotional health and what works for you. Yeah, absolutely. And one of the things is people will ask me, you know, like, how come I didn't tell them that I was going through this, you know, when I found the lump and everything. And part of that is just because you know how it is. If you break your arm or if you get a root canal and you tell somebody, then that opens the door for them to, and they never have bad intentions ever, but then they're going to share a story of the other person that they know who broke their arm or had a root canal and what they're, you know, what happened to them. And that happened a lot, you know, with, for the people who I did tell, again, they never meant anything bad by it, but they'd be like, oh yeah, like my, you know, aunt's cousin, sister's daughter had breast cancer, same thing, found it herself. And, you know, she didn't have a double mastectomy the first time and then it came back and then she died. And you're just like, That's thank not- you for that. Yeah. <laughs> and I, people never meant bad by it, but it's just things that I knew that I couldn't hear. I didn't need to hear, or, you know, again, people, they didn't mean anything by it, but when, you know, they would ask what my options were and I told them what I chose, then they would say, Oh, well, um, yeah, I think I would do that too. If I were you. And I'm just like, um, it wasn't up to you, (laughs) but thank you. Thank you for your opinion. Like it's about me, my husband, and uh, my position. <laughs> Mindset is huge. It is so important. We know that stress and worry in women, particularly in studies, has been shown to increase our inflammatory response, which can lead to cardiovascular disease, which can accelerate the growth of you know abnormal things in our body. And so inflammation is not great. And inflammation can be incited by stress. And so clinically, if you talk to oncologists, and I don't know if they're data, but they will tell you anecdotally, people who go in with positive attitudes, people who have support systems, people who are of positive mindset, even in the worst of, you know, news, they tend, their outcomes tend to be better, even if their cancers are more aggressive, even if they are diagnosed younger it makes a huge impact on their outcome. And, you know, my husband's been a practicing oncologist for a very long time, and he has 
story after story of, of what an immense difference that makes. He says, I can quote them all the data, the literature and everything else, but a positive attitude can, can change that. So it's very interesting how they see that. And I think that just watching Catherine through all this, she'll tell you she had rough days, but I think she always had a very positive outlook. And the days that she wasn't, she had mocha lattes and someone actually lifted her out of bed so she would get to where she needed to be. I think that's key is having those people in your life help you when you're having those gap days, when you can't do it and you can't show up for yourself. You have people that do and push you to where you need to get to. So Dr. Javay called me. This was like after my diagnosis, early June. <laughs> I hadn't had my double mastectomy yet. And she's on her way to go on a trip with her husband. You know, they were having a little getaway weekend. And she called me and she was like, Catherine, I just want you to know that, you know, through all of my husband's experience in the clinic with all of his oncology patients, the ones who have a good attitude tend to have a better outcome and a better experience. She only had to tell me that once and I took it to heart and I ran with it. And I think that there's a lot to be said for that. And I'm so grateful that she called me just to tell me that. I did. I don't know. It was this weird. I was driving and I was talking about her and because she had shared that she was going through this and I was thinking about her as I was in the car and he's like, you have to tell her. And I was like, I don't want to feel like I'm butting in like, well, you know, being one of those people. And he's like, no. So I called her on the way down. We were driving down to Tennessee and I remember this conversation. So, (laughs) and I was like, girl, (laughs) yes. So important. I tell everybody now, because they'll say something like you have like such a good attitude or you like handle this so well. And, you know, I'm like, it's my faith. And Dr. Javay called to tell me that, you know, having a good attitude is a game changer. And it's so true. I was going to ask too, like, what is the one piece of advice you would give yourself coming out of this now that you're hitting up on a year? Honestly, I never once thought, why me through any of this? It wasn't why me. It was, what am I going to learn from this? And that's one of those things that I just never want to forget because we all know that sometimes we learn our biggest lessons through the hard times. Mm -hmm. And you know, Dr. Javay, when she texted me to see if I would be interested in doing this podcast and share my story, I mean, like my, I could just feel like the blood running through my body and my heart just started racing. And I felt like a little bit emotional. And I'm like, you know, maybe I lied a little bit because maybe I wasn't ready. But truth of the matter is, I don't ever want to forget this journey. I don't want to ever forget that lesson. I don't ever want to forget that, you know, I was, looking at things and just thinking, okay, this is happening to me. What am I going to learn? And what am I going to take away from this? Well, lady, I will tell you, you're just as beautiful on the inside as you are on the outside and keep smiling. Cause like I said, when you walk into my office, it lights up a room. So, and I'm glad to see you on this, on the other side of this, both with COVID and with your cancer journey. And that you're literally emerging. And I know you're going to be emotional because there's going to be a lot of, you know, anniversaries and milestones are going to hit. But I think you just keep on trucking with that, with that positive attitude of yours. I definitely plan on it. And I appreciate your guys' support so, so much. And I love coming into your office. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you so much for sharing your journey, your story. I I think a lot of words of wisdom for a lot of women out there. So thank you. 
Yeah, no, I hope women can listen to this and honestly just be empowered to, you know, do their self-breast exams, advocate for themselves, even if it is as little as just calling the doctor, you know, we're all busy, but, you know, taking the time to care for ourselves is so important. I know Dr. Javay talks about this a lot because it does affect our health and affects our health in the long run. But yeah, I just hope that people, you know, can get their mammograms, remember to do their self-breast exams on, you know, their birth date of every month. And I really am just so honored to be on here with you guys. Thank you, lady. This episode of Her Voice has been a production of HerMD, a female forward wellness center in Cincinnati, Ohio. You can follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at HerMD Health and sign up for our newsletter at HerMDHealth.com. If you enjoyed this podcast, we hope you'll share it with your friends. They can listen to us on Buzzsprout, Apple Podcasts, and Spotify. If you'd like to share your sexual health story, you can reach out to us at info at HerMDHealth.com.